This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Emerest, CPA with Parmels and Associates. So this is the first episode of 2023. Sounds really weird to say that, but here we are. And as promised this week, we're going to be talking about what I think this year is going to look like for small businesses, just like you, as well as the overall economy as a whole. Before we get into that, though, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. Why wait to order parts until a car is in your shop? With Shopware, you can see if you're short on a certain part before you open the RO and pre-order so that you never have to wait. GetShopware.com. As a shop owner, it's important to invest in the right tools to help your business grow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow, an endorsed Napa Auto Care program, is committed to helping the whole shop reach its full potential. Please visit them at RepairShopOfTomorrow.com. If I had a crystal ball, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast, or maybe I would, I'm not sure, but I'd probably be off solving the world's problems. However, I do not have a crystal ball, so here's my thoughts. Overall here, I want you to use this information as you please, but these are honestly the indicators that I'm making uh, business decisions from, as well as my own financial decisions. So disclosures aside, now to the real deal. And all in all, you know, to kind of cut to the chase here, I think that 2023 will end up being about a flat year. And what do I mean by that? I think that the start of the year could be pretty slow. I mean, the first two months as you're going to be, you know, or first two quarters, as we'll talk about later in this episode, are really, I think, the tipping point. Depending how those first two quarters go, it's probably going to dictate a lot of things about our future. Probably regardless of how those first two quarters go, I see the third and fourth quarter of this year being pretty strong. Again, depending on how bad the first two quarters are, it's probably going to depend on how good the third and fourth are. But overall, I would say in most situations that I've kind of been running through here, I see kind of a downturn and then an upturn overall probably end up to be a zero sum game. You know, lose 100 here, gain 100 at the end, overall still zero. But to kind of, you know, get on like a little bit of backstory on, well, how did I come up with this? So I spent a lot of time on this episode, not only, you know, doing some research and pulling some numbers and talking to some clients about this, but this is really what I look at a ton, right? As a lot of you guys know, I'm an economics major. Obviously, I'm also an accountant. So some of this stuff is real world applications, but this just kind of gets my curiosity. This is the kind of stuff that I like reading about. Another reason why I like reading about a lot of this is because there's, sure, you can go out and read a ton of opinions on that. What does 2023 look like? You're going to get a ton of different answers because A, no one knows, but B, also a lot of people have their own kind of personal agenda on this. I really don't have a personal agenda whatsoever other than I want to try and stay ahead of this, not only for you guys listening, but also myself, right? I invest in this economy. I have stuff going on. I have a business and I always like to stay ahead of this. But the good thing about, you know, a lot of this is there's real numbers out there, right? All of these different things that I go into, there is hard data that goes along with it. Some of it makes perfect sense. Some of it's very easy to read. Some of it is a bit more convoluted. And a lot of times you can't trust just one number. You have to kind of be trusting the numbers, but then also looking to see what the reaction is on those numbers. And some of these make perfect sense. Hey, I know why we're in a position of, of how we got here. Keeping interest rates too low for too long. And then obviously some of the other side of it of, yeah, obviously those don't look good when interest rates are historically high. It's kind of going on with our expectation. 
And I say this about businesses a lot. Hey, the numbers don't look good, but the numbers are what we would expect it to look like based on X, Y, and Z. Now, the weird part here is when the numbers don't match up with what we're seeing, right? Hey, based on interest rates being like this, I would expect housing prices to be doing this, but they're not. Based on interest rates doing this, I would expect to talk the stock market to be looking like this, but it's not. And so what we have here in a lot of different things is these big gap of what we're expecting or what we want it to be and what that market is really doing. Now, what the overall economy has trying to been doing over the last, I guess, probably year now, maybe shorter than that, is we've been trying to narrow that gap, right? We've been trying to burst the bubble, right, in a couple different markets, but we don't want that bubble to burst, right? When a bubble bursts, in common terms, that's a recession, right? Hey, 2007, 2008, housing market was too high, a lot of other weird stuff going on there, and all of a sudden, the bubble burst, it popped And then what do we see? A crash. What they're trying to do is essentially take air out of a balloon here very, very slowly, but ultimately get to the desired size. If they can do that, this year is going to be probably pretty good. If it pops, we're probably in for some trouble. And that will definitely be in the quarter that it hits, probably at least another quarter to, you know, kind of pick up all the pieces that hits really early. Hey, bubble burst, right? Maybe the best thing, right? And a lot of times people are talking about a recession like it's a bad thing. Honestly, as we'll talk about a little bit later, it might be inevitable and it might be nice to just rip that Band-Aid off so we can begin picking up the pieces and rebuilding. Uh, if you're trying to keep this propped up you know, for too long, you could be just delaying the inevitable and it's still going to happen. But now it's just you know, had tougher times for an extended period for no real reason. But, you know, to start off here, I feel like we have to be looking at the inflation numbers. You guys are probably sick of hearing me talk about inflation, but it's so, so important because this is the biggest issue that is probably driving our economy right now. And it's definitely the biggest issue that's driving government intervention, which, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago um, on the Fed rate, the bank loan rate, the interest rate episode, this is all what the government's trying to do to affect our economy, right? Just like I talked about just a second ago there. The numbers don't lie, and the numbers also make sense for what we know they're trying to do here. And also remember here, we don't live in a true free market society, right? A lot of this stuff would actually be really easy or would even be applicable if we lived in a free market society. Free market society means prices set where supply and demand intersect. And if you have no outside uh, pressure or price ceilings or price floors or you know borrowing money or anything like that, That's going to be very simple. Hey, if you look at a price, it doesn't make sense on it. The market's going to dictate that and the market's going to change the price. But we have a government getting involved here and shifting supply curves or shifting demand curves or attempting to, we get a really, really wacky thing. History has taught us one thing, though. You know, it's you can delay, you can intervene. At the end of the day, we still do live in a free market society to a certain extent because people put up with it for a little bit but they won't put up with it very long. And even no matter what the government tries to do, the free market will win in some aspects of it. But let's go back to the inflation. And you know some of these things we've talked about in the past, other things we haven't talked about in this way, but I want to kind of set the stage on 2023, right? Remember this whole episode is what I think is going to happen in 2023. But in order to kind of project a future, we have to see where we are and see how we got here. Exact same way I talk about you and your numbers. You want to make more money. You got to figure out if you're making money right now and be able to understand those. 
If you go back and you look at the inflation charts, and this is something measured monthly, and there's a lot of political agenda behind this. You can't trust these numbers in a vacuum. And honestly, if you talk to most people, they seem too low. But again, we're not going to get into that today. But if you look at 2018, 2019, even until first two months of 2020, um, inflation was pretty steady, right? We had 2%, 2 2.2%, 2.3%, 2.4%, 2.8%, 2.8%, 2.7%, 2.2%, 2.5%, 2.1%. That was 2018, right? Up and down. And a lot of times you can see some seasonality on this stuff. 2019 was, again, a pretty good time. Started the year at 1.5. It finished the year at 2.2 average inflation on this. Now, 2020 is where it starts to get weird, right? 2020, we start off at 2.4. And in April, we're down to 0.3, right? We almost had negative inflation. and in May, we were down to 0.1, right? That was about as close as we got to negative inflation. But what happened there? everything kind of dried up, right? That was when the start of COVID really started to affect our lives. That's where they started to do shutdowns. They started to do, you know, a lot of different things all across the world, but also in our backyards as well. Depending on what state you're in, some of that could be affecting your local market. Some of it maybe didn't. It all affected your local market in some way, shape or form though, right? Because we are in such a global economy and such a national economy that there's some things that you can be insulated uh, at least in the short term. In the long term, all of this stuff is going to kind of creep in there. So just like we talked about before there, you know, this is not a free market. So this is where the government started to get involved. And so March of 2020, the government knew that, you know, because of, you know, the pandemic and COVID and all the kinds of stuff, that the economy was going to be in for a very, very hard fight. And to give it the best fighting chance possible, what they did in March of 2020 is they cut down the rates to basically zero. They're trying to stimulate the economy. Hey, I know things are tough. I know you're locked inside of it, but we want to stimulate you to spend, right? We want to stimulate you to borrow. Money became very, very cheap. And, you know, in the short term, it was still pretty bad. But if you remember, you know, after kind of the initial hit of COVID, 2020 turned out to be a really, really good year right? Economy was actually doing really well. People are spending a lot of money and a lot of Americans had more money than they've ever had in the past, whether it was stimulus, whether it was PPP. A lot of people just also had maintained their jobs. Now they were working from home and these people not having to drive was obviously an effect on your business because the mileage went down, but them not having to drive, them not being allowed to travel meant that the average American had more discretionary money to spend than really in ever in recent memory. And so for a lot of shops, it was a very good year. 2021 was, again, a really good year for a lot of people. And even 2022 was a really good year. Towards the end, we started getting a little bit shaky there. But back to the inflation rates on it, you know, 2020 turned out to be actually an okay year. Again, first part of the year, mainly that second quarter was a really bad hit. But for most people, if you looked at the overall year, they had in similar year to 19, and a lot of people did a lot better or even you know, somewhat decently better than they did the year in the past. Now, 2021 was, again, a year where we just didn't really know what was going on, right? Is the pandemic over? Is it getting close to the end? And we saw kind of some steady inflation numbers in the first part of the year. But then when everything really started to open back up, we started to see some pretty scary numbers here. So inflation, again, you know, for the first quarter of 21 was 1.4, 1.6, However, when we get to start to get the second, third and fourth quarter, we see four, five, six, seven percent inflation, 
right? So the market was actually doing extremely, extremely well here, right? Things were opening back up. People had that money. People wanted to go out and spend that money. Also, there was a lot of other things. It was very cheap to spend money. People were uh, buying new houses. People were refinancing their houses. People were pulling cash out. People were going to buy cars. A lot of people were doing a lot of different things because there was this hangover, right? COVID created a hangover. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't spend any money. I couldn't spend any money. Now this is burning a hole in my pocket. I need to go out and spend. 2022, the start of 2022, picked up right where 21 left off. They, you know, rates, inflation rates kept on growing and it was probably something that everyone had noticed, but I don't think people really had started to click yet, right? Because we didn't really know what numbers were driven by that pent up demand and what numbers were really just now rooted in the economy that we had. But the probably, I think March, maybe April of 2022 was when the government specifically really started to notice and say, hey, we have a problem here. We're actually growing way too fast, and this inflation is getting out of control, and we need to do something to stop this. So pretty consistently, starting in March of 2022, I wanted to say this year, but it's actually last year. Starting in March of 2022, the Fed started to get involved here. Remember, we talked about this. The Federal Reserve sets the target uh, interest rates, which pretty much every other thing goes off of. And to kind of combat the inflation, they started raising interest rates. So if you looked at March of 2022, their target rate was you know pretty much 0%. First, at the end of the year, we're at 45 uh, almost 5% for their target rates there. So we increased that at a historic level. We've never seen them raise rates this quick, this much. Um, but they had to because we had also never seen inflation kind of skyrocket to this level in my lifetime and probably most of these people listening's lifetime as well. And so what the government's trying to do here is trying to ramp it back. Hey, this is not sustainable for prices to go up an average of 7 or 8% a year. And we need to kind of make people hurt a little bit so we can pull this demand back down and make sure that this is a reasonable level. And we've started to see that somewhat, right? We've started to see the inflation rates start to fall in the fourth quarter. Again, how much of it is what they're doing? How much of it is outside factors? We don't know. Now, this leads us to 2023. And again, of why I say that the tipping point is going to be in this first and second quarter. Now, when we, you know, the Federal Reserve is the one that sets these rates and every meeting that they have, they kind of give a little state of the union. Hey, here's what we plan to do or here's what we did. Here's what we're kind of looking at. And here's what we kind of think the overall future is going to be. And also what they do is they ask them of, you know, and we've known this for months, maybe even years, that they're going to be targeting to increase these rates. But the big question is everyone has said, all right, well, where do you guys see kind of that terminal point, right? Where do you guys say, well, we're not going to go above this number. Once we get to this number, we're probably at the peak. And that probably means it's going to start coming back down. So when they asked them about this, it was last summer at some point. They said that the target would probably be four and a half, maybe 5%. That would be the max of what they would want to do. Anything higher than that, there are some real detriments and they wouldn't feel comfortable going any higher or don't think that they need to, to have the rate start to come back down. Now, in the most recent meeting on that, they've kind of changed the goalpost a little bit here. Um, last time that they came out and talked about this, they're saying maybe five to five and a half percent is going to be the max. They might not have to get there, but they can't see it going above that. Now, the tricky thing in, and, and it makes sense of why they changed this target, 
is because the markets are moved just based on what comes out of these meetings, just what comes out of these meeting minutes, not even actual policy, just certain words that they say can affect a market so much here. So they have to be very careful of what they say. But more or less, what they were pressing them on is they were saying, all right, your original target was about four and a half to five percent, which is very close to where we are right now. If they kept that goal the same, then essentially what they would be saying is, hey, we're probably here. We're probably already at the max. And now we're going to look at either leaving rates alone or starting to bring them back down. Now, by moving that target and saying, well, five to five and a half percent is probably the max we'd want to do. It now gives them flexibility and allows them to be a little bit more ambiguous about their next move here. Because what that's saying is, hey, we know that we still have some more room that we can go up. Hey, we said that five to five and a half percent is probably the max. We're still not there yet, right? We're probably 75 basis points away from there. That's given them enough runway to be able to increase the, the rates again. Now, are they going to be able to increase at three or four percent? No, there's only so much more that they can go up here. But also, it doesn't lock them into increasing the rates, leaving them the same or even decreasing them. They have flexibility here. And if the numbers look okay, they might choose to do nothing in January. Um, the next Fed meeting is actually at the end of January. If you're interested in this stuff, if you mess around with the stock market, you got to watch that. It's one of the biggest drivers of the stock market. So keep your eye on that. But if nothing else, we're going to be keeping a very close eye on what happens in January. Because ultimately, we have three different moves that they can do here. If the numbers look okay, then they might not choose to do anything in January. Now, if the numbers look really good, they might actually start to decrease rates. I do not see that happening. I think that it would actually show a sign of weakness if they increase the rates in December and then turn around and decrease the rates in January. If they decrease the rates in January, it's probably not even a good thing. That's probably actually a bad thing um, because essentially they're saying, oh, we screwed up. We've already went too high. Now we need to start bringing it down. You know, probably the healthiest and the best case scenario of what we can look for here is them saying, hey, you know what? Some of these numbers are looking good because they're not just looking at inflation, right? They're looking at inflation. They're looking at jobs claims. They're looking at overall GDP. They're looking at, you know, reserves of cash for not only uh, consumers, but also corporations and stuff like that. But I think best case scenario is they look at this and say, you know what? We're starting to see some pretty good things here. These numbers look good. These look better. These look like they're moving in the right direction. Let's just leave this alone for right now. Let's just leave this alone and let's not do anything right now. And let's see what happens at the next meeting. And, you know, at the next meeting, then they could look at this and they say, hey, again, maybe we just leave this alone. It's going into right spot. If they leave it alone, I can't see them coming back and then increasing in the next meeting. Really, the option there would be to leave it alone or start bringing it back down. Um, if you look at the path of what the Federal Reserve does, especially in times like this where it's moving a lot, it is not usually volatile. And what I mean by that is they don't go up, then go down, then go up, then go down, right? It's a lot more gradual. We're going up, we're staying the same, we're going down, we're staying the same, we're going up a little bit, staying the same, and then going down, right? It's a much more cyclical. When you started in this business, did you really think that cars would be driving themselves and that people would be buying cars online without test driving them? I don't think any of us did, yet that's exactly what is going on. On the repair side, the auto industry is changing fast. Customers expect quick answers and proof that they need the repairs that you recommend. They want to pay you while buying a coffee, then rate you on Yelp after picking up their keys. So why stay in the past? 
A shop owner named Carolyn asked herself the same question, so she created an online shop management system that automates the stuff you do over and over again. She and her team added texting in every step in the process from booking your appointment to posting that stellar review. They learn from their customers just like you learn from yours, and it's the system that's leading the industry into a bright future. Find out more about this and other things at GetShopware.com. As a shop owner, it's important to invest in the right tools to help your business grow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow, an endorsed Napa Auto Care coaching and marketing program, is committed to helping the whole shop reach its full potential by utilizing their industry-leading learning management system. Repair Shop of Tomorrow have produced over 50 learning modules to provide continuing education for shop owners, service advisors, and technicians. Their learning management system allows all employees to learn exactly what the owner is learning on their own time. Training modules such as Repair Order Workflow, Advisor Huddle, Business Flow Chart, and Driving Profitability helps ensure everyone in the shop knows what the right looks like and understand their responsibilities inside the organization. When the team is all operating with the same playbook, the results are remarkable. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. If they start dropping the rates in January, that is probably the death tone, meaning, ooh, fire alarms going off, warning bells are going off, this thing's coming down. Also, if they say, you know what, it's not enough, we need to keep on raising it, it could also have the exact effect that way too, right? There's a lot of people that are already kind of gambling, not only with their mind, but their money as well, that we've hit the max. And if they see we're not at the max, that there's still more to come as far as rate increases, that's going to be a shock to the system. All eyes right now on inflation, on the Fed, and the overall outlook are really still kind of hinged on what goes on, and more specifically, probably what goes on at the end of January. If you look at a lot of stuff, no one's going to admit to this, but this is a very, very important meeting, and there's a lot of things that are hinged to this, right? Stock market, overall economy, and other smaller markets are all directly tied to this one. And if you look at the stock market, I I didn't do a section on this one because, I don't know, it's kind of redundant because the stock market is really mimicking what some of these other markets are doing. Um, You know, stock market, for those of you that's been following it, 2022 was a very bad year for the stock market. Now, there were definitely some sectors that were hurt by the overall inflation and stuff like that. They were posting lower numbers, but also there's just been a mass exodus from the market. Um, Some of it's natural because the market did really well. People were getting their profits and getting out. But also there was other options out there to get a pretty decent return on investment. When rates were low, putting money into a bank account got you zero interest, right? So your only choice was to invest this in a market, bonds, whatever you wanted to do, because you wanted to get a return on investment. However, there were some pretty good options and still are right now. About some short-term banking, you know, whether it's CDs or whether it's bonds or uh, something like that, that could get you a pretty good return on investment, right? Four, maybe 5% if you're in the right spot. Um, Now, it could hurt some of your liquidity, but there are options out there to get a pretty decent return on investment without having the risk that goes along with the stock market. So what a lot of people looked at is saying, hey, there is way too much volatility in this. I don't know if we're at the bottom. I don't know where at the top. I don't know where we stand. But I'm taking my money out of the market. I'm going to park it somewhere. Yeah, I'm not going to make 10 or 12% on this money, but I'm also not going to lose any money on this, especially in the case of a CD. 
And so since there are decent options right now to get that return on investment, people pull money out of the stock market, you know, kill demand, kill the overall prices, which then kind of was a cyclical thing that made other people pull out their money. And everyone right now is kind of just sitting here wondering. If you have the long term in mind, right, meaning that you don't want to get out of the market anytime soon, you don't plan to retire, in the long run, stock market always gives good returns, right? If you look at a year, if you look at six months, it's going to be a different story. But if you look at over the last decade, a couple decades and stuff like that, stock market gets very good return on investment in the long term. Short term, though, again, we're in a volatile situation. Ultimately here, you know, I want to wrap up the inflation with what we talked about before. They're trying to increase our rates to get inflation under control and bring our overall economy back into a reasonable and sustainable level levels from a number side of things. And if rates kind of remain the same or they, you know, ultimately start bringing those rates down in the first two quarters of next year, then one of two things are going on. Either this is working exactly like what they had done before and inflation has gotten under control and we're starting to get back to normal Or also, if we see rates start to go back down, it could also mean that the economy has crumbled and we're in a full-blown recession and they're trying to jumpstart the economy. Now, obviously, that would be pretty clear to see, but it really all depends on what's going on. Either way, in the second part of next year, I imagine that rates will be falling or at least be lower than what they are right now. Could be a sign of good things, right? Could be a sign that this soft landing that they had talked about has worked. Also could mean that we have, you know, that balloon has popped, the bubble had popped and we're in overall free fall. I've already fallen and now we're trying to scrape back out of that. But either way, rates getting lower in one way is not a good thing. In another way, it's needed. We It has to happen uh, sooner rather than later. Now, the big thing here that they're trying to avoid, you know, other than an overall recession, but it's something probably a little bit more specific, which is called stagflation. Now, what is stagflation? Stagflation means that the overall economy is stagnant, meaning that the economy is not growing um, or market's not going up. People aren't making any more money. GDP is not increasing. In some cases, actually decreasing. But we still have inflation. In simple terms, stagflation means things are costing more, but you don't have any more money. Now, a lot of you might be listening and saying, Hunt, we might already be in stagflation. Uh, Some people are already arguing that, you know, and who cares what the numbers say. But in a material sense, yeah, wages are not going up anywhere as fast as what prices are, which is why we're in this whole conundrum right now. And what a lot of what the Fed is doing could also be helping the cause of what they think. But a lot of people also think that they could be part of the problem as well. A great example here to kind of, you know, give a overall synopsis of what's going on is something that I read from an investor. I forget where I heard this, but I thought it was a really cool example. And I thought it really kind of put into terms of what is going on right now. Think about our economy as your yard, right? So what's going on here right now is we have a weed that has popped up. And now in a perfect world, you would go out and you would pull that one weed, right? You got beautiful grass all around it, but you got this one ugly weed. Wouldn't it be so easy if you could go out there and you could just remove that one weed and you don't ever have to worry about it? But instead of what happened right now is we have the Fed that has a big bottle of Roundup. And what they're doing is they're trying to spray this weed with Roundup. 
Now, if they do it well, they might be able to just spray this weed alone and maybe a little spot around this weed or, you know, the good grass is going to get killed by the Roundup as well. But also what happens if we don't trust the person with that Roundup is they're just spraying, they're spraying, they're spraying, they're spraying. And it might be kind of a slow burn. The weed might start to be wilt a little bit. And then boom, one day what happens? The weed's now dead, but so is all the grass around it. And this is what the overall recession would look like. Yeah, you killed the weed, but you killed everything else around there too. You went full skirt, scorched earth. Now we just have to start from scratch, put some new grass seed down, put some new sod down, whatever it might happen. And this is kind of a great example of what we're talking about here. Hey, you might kill the weed. And in this case, let's say weed is inflation, but the grass or the overall economy around it is also going to suffer depending on what your uh, methods are or depending on how well you do this. Right now, we can't be a very good judge. I don't want to be negative and say that they're not doing a good job about it. Um, Honestly, the entire economy and the Federal Reserve right now is in a very, very precarious position. There is no right move. And also, a lot of this stuff is too early to judge, right? A lot of this stuff looks like a bad decision in the short term, but in the long run, you can see that it was needed and vice versa on this. But either way, first and second quarter of next year are going to be a very big tipping point here. And the first date I'm going to have you keep in mind is end of January when that Fed meeting happens. And let's see what happens, because I think that that could be the first domino in a natural progression from there. But it all probably starts there. What we're trying to do here is obviously you guys aren't investors here in the sense that that's your day job or day traders. But the overall market and the overall economy is going to dictate what is going to be affected in your business. And one of the biggest drivers, probably not for your business, but for a lot of your clients, is going to be the housing market. It's also very backed by Wall Street and a lot of different investors coming outside of it, but it's also affecting you as well. If you listen to this, you probably have a house. If you don't, you probably want to buy a house at some point, or maybe you have a house and you want to sell it, right? So this is something that affects everyone. Everywhere needs someone to live. Again, if you look at the data for the housing market, it's still really weird, Because rates have doubled in the last year alone. And remember that there are some markets where they have a certain expectation of what you expect it to look like, but the numbers don't match up. And the housing market is a great example of that. Rates have doubled in the last year alone. Rates and housing prices are inversely related. As rates go up, housing prices have went down. Now we have seen that somewhat, right? Housing prices have fallen, especially in the short term, in the last six months or so, but nowhere near as much as what needs to happen or what we would expect. Average you know, person is paying twice for the same house than they were a year ago just because of uh, mortgage rates alone, just because of their mortgage payment going up. Now, you wouldn't expect the housing market to be cut in half, but more or less, that would be a lot more logical relationship. Hey, my cost of having that house has now went up, so I need you to lower your price so that it still makes sense for me. And we just have not seen that yet. Now, another thing that's really weird, and this has happened in the short term, maybe not so short term, but it's been happening and more and more, is banks are starting to get nervous here. Now, banks are starting to get nervous in a couple ways. Uh, First is, is they're doing a little bit better job of who they sell to. And a lot of that has already been cut out because some people no longer qualify. Hey, if your salary has not went up or it has stayed the same or maybe even fallen a little bit, you can probably afford about half the size house that you could a year ago just because of rates, right? So the lending is already tightening up. 
But even furthermore, home equity lines of credit are kind of a thing of the past, right? Home equity line of credit is just like refining your house and taking your equity out of that in the form of a cash out refi. You could also go to a bank and say, hey, I got a million dollar house. I owe 500,000 on it. Give me $250,000 in a line of credit. You can secure it on my house. In the past, almost all banks, including big banks, were doing these and were doing this as fast as they could. Wait, we're only lending up to 75% or maybe 80% of what your house is worth? Yeah, of course. We don't really care what you spend it on because if you don't pay us back, we'll just take your house and we still win that way. However, most of the big boys have already gotten out of home equity lines. If you go look to Wells Fargo doesn't do it, uh, Bank of America, I don't believe does them anymore, Chase, a lot of them are getting out of this altogether. And if they are still in it, they're going to be doing it at very high rates and much lower debt to equity ratio. Meaning, no, we're not going to give you 75%, maybe 70 or maybe 65%. But why are they doing this? Two reasons. Why? First off, you know, they want to make sure that they're making money on this. Home equity lines are always something that the banks haven't liked that much. And with a couple changes in recent years, they've liked them even less. So the reason why a bank doesn't like a home equity line is, let's say that I go out and get a home equity line for $300,000. If I don't take any money off that line, I pay 0% interest. I didn't borrow anything, so I don't owe you guys any money. I could if I want to, but I don't really need anything right now, so it's just sitting there. Banks hate this because that 300000 they cannot lend that to someone else. Hey, that money is earmarked for Hunt. And if Hunt doesn't want it, he doesn't have to use it. But if he doesn't use it, we make no money. And so a lot of banks are already wanted to get out because they're saying, you know, these new rules don't allow us to leverage this. And if someone doesn't use this, then we make no money. Why would we ever do this? Another thing is, is also, you know, the appraisals on houses. Do we even trust these appraisals, right? Do we think that there's going to be a big downturn in the overall real estate market where we could give out this money to hunt and think that we only gave out 75% of his house price, but maybe it's already happened and we don't even know this yet, or maybe this is in the future that we do have, you know, a complete crumbling of the housing market. Now, when we thought we were at 75%, we're actually at 110% because now Hunt owes more than what his house is even worth. And think about it. If you have a home equity line of credit and a mortgage, what's going to get paid first? The mortgage, right? Home equity is always secondary on that. And so a lot of banks are getting very nervous about this and they're trying to go away. Now, overall, why are we seeing what's going on in the housing market? Why is it not going down as much as what we thought it would? So the one side of this is a pretty big factor is the housing supply is still pretty low. And I was looking before uh, I recorded this, I was looking at some charts on housing inventory and a big measure of housing inventory is either, you know, strictly the amount of houses on the market or also days on the market, right? If you have a really hot market, days on the market might be zero or even nothing, right? Hey, it's sold before it even gets listed. Some of you listening might have had that happen either on a house that you sold or you bought. Hey, that was already sold. They didn't even have to put it on the market. They got five offers. It was actually on the market for zero days because it never had to be listed. That's a really hot market. On the downside of it, a, a slow market means the houses are staying on there for longer, maybe even having price changes on it. Hey, that house is on the market for 120, 180 days, which means the market is telling that person people are not willing to buy it for that price. So you're either going to have to wait 
or you're going to have to lower your price so that the market is interested in it. Now, looking at those numbers, I don't see really anything that telling. We see some swings on this, but it's also very natural to the overall calendar. You know, the end of the year is going to be the highest cycle or the longest time on a market for a house in the entire year. Generally, the fourth quarter is a little bit slower for housing because people don't like to move around the holidays. And so generally, if someone wants to move, they'll delay it until after the new year or do it in the fall. Um, and if you look at the trends, they support that. And so I don't think that I can gather a whole lot on the housing side of it. But to kind of speak about why I still think we have a strong market is interest rates are really good right now for a lot of people that already have a house. And so, you know, if I want to go out and I want to go buy a new house, I'm not going to be able to get the 3% interest that I have on my mortgage right now. I'm going to probably be paying closer to 6 or 7%. So a lot of people are like, you know what? I might want to move, but my interest rate's too good right now. I'm not willing to sell right now until I know that I can get a similar or at least better interest rate. And so a lot of people thinking about moving or thinking about selling just aren't right now. Also, there is a lot of people that are saying, you know what? I wouldn't mind selling my house right now, but there's not a whole lot of options out there. I don't want to sell my house and then not have anything to go and replace it. So a lot of these buyers that are also homeowners themselves have just left the market uh, looking for a new house because they don't see the value, right? Hey, I got to move, but I'm not willing to pay these prices right now. My rate's pretty good on my mortgage, so I'm just going to hold tight. And also the last side on here is a lot of people just can't afford to buy a new house with their rates, whether you already have a house right now, but this is a lot of people that are trying to buy their first house. Because with the market the way it is, there's still a lot of people that have good equity in their house. So even if the new houses are going up, they're kind of winning on the other side of it because they'll be able to sell their house for a good bit of money. But a lot of people that are trying to buy that first house or start a home or stop renting and buy a house, a lot of those people just can't even afford to qualify for a house. I was talking to one of my buddies that does mortgages and he's having to requalify people because in the past they qualified for a house that they wanted. But now with the higher rates, they just don't even qualify. And maybe the budget that they qualify for doesn't kind of you know match up with what they actually want to buy. And again, either they kind of wait around or they just say, you know what, we're going to table this. We're not even going to look at this. So all in all, you know, they've done a pretty good job of affecting the demand side of it with the interest rates and stuff like that. But since the supply is still low, those prices have not fallen anywhere as much as what we expected. Again, we're at a very weird area right now, and we'll call it a tipping point. Now, what's going to happen here? All right, Hunt, enough talking, but what do you actually see happening in the housing market? Now, some people are going back to 2007, 2008. Look at what happened. Rates were too low for too long. Housing prices were getting out of control. And then we had a massive bubble. The bubble burst and you know a lot of different things happened, but it wasn't good. Full-blown recession. I do not see a repeat of 2008 going on for a number of reasons. Overall, you know, it's similar to what we have going on there, but there was a lot of other stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, the underwriting laws were pretty much non-existent. Um, some of these mortgages that they were giving out to people were terrible. They never could have afforded it. We had adjustable rates. We had mortgage-backed securities. There are so many things that happened back then that we just don't have right now. Now, we have our own problems that we didn't have back then, but the banks are also getting smarter. They made a huge gaffe back in 2007, 2008 with the foreclosure. 
What they did is they made a pretty hard line stance. If you're not paying your um, mortgage, it's going to get foreclosed on. We're going to get our asset back and we're going to sell it. Now, what they did not realize is by doing this, they were shooting themselves in the foot. Because let's say that you have someone that owes you a million dollars. They're in a big, one of these big neighborhoods with 500 houses. That house is worth a million dollars and you foreclose on it. Now, when a foreclosure happens, you're probably not going to be able to sell it for full price. Maybe it's a short sale. Maybe you sell it at auction, whatever it might be. You're affecting the value of that house, but you're a bank, right? You don't care. Hey, I only, um, you know, lend it out 75% of what this is worth. So even if I sell this million dollar house for 775, we still got all the money that we need and we're happy. Now that's okay if you have one house in that neighborhood. But what happens if you have 15? What happens if you have 20? What happens if you have 200 houses? So by foreclosing on that first house, now the other houses that you have foreclosed on the neighborhood now are worth even less. You actually go through the process of foreclosing on more and selling more. Then what you're doing is you're having a race to the bottom here. Once you're offloading your last bit of houses here, not only is it not worth 75 cents on a dollar, probably now to 50 cents on a dollar. And now when you're foreclosing and selling these houses, you're not even making back all of your money. You're actually losing money on that. And that's exactly what we saw back in 2008, right? Is banks were foreclosing at such a high rate that they killed the entire market themselves, right? They only had themselves to blame. Now, towards the end of that, they actually kind of got a little bit smarter. And what you saw is a lot of stuff in pre-foreclosure. Pre-foreclosure means, hey, you're technically in foreclosure, but we're trying to find other alternatives to it. Now, what a lot of times that they were doing in the past is they still weren't doing a whole lot of restructures back then, but instead of sending all of these houses into foreclosure and killing the market completely, they would be kind of staggering this. Hey, let's put that one into foreclosure. Let's put this one over here into foreclosure and do it in a lot more uniform way to hopefully get their money out, but not kill the overall market. Now, what they're doing right now is something completely different. We don't really see a whole lot of foreclosures whatsoever. Some people are saying that it's going to happen and, you know, the rules on COVID and stuff like that allowed it, made it a lot harder for them to do this. But also the banks have learned from this. Hey, I don't want to go collect this money, right? I want you to just pay me on a monthly basis. I don't want to put this into, you know, a sale or short sale or something like this. I just want you to pay me. And so what they're doing is they're going back and they're renegotiating deals. They're saying, hey, Mr. Homeowner, you've been behind. You haven't paid us for 12 months. I could take your house. I don't want to take your house. Will you just start paying me? And what they do is they're going back and saying, hey, if you just start paying me now, we'll forget this ever happened and maybe even just eat what you should have paid us and call it square. A lot of times they're doing, you know, essentially a, a refinance on this. Hey, you know what? You've only had this thing for two years. You've already missed some payments on this. Why don't we refinance this one, start fresh, put you in a new deal. Here's what your rate's going to be. Here's what your payment is. And we'll chalk it up and we'll just keep on going. I have seen a couple of times too, as they're saying, hey, you missed 12 months. We're going to put those 12 months onto the end of your loan in 20 years or something like that. Just start paying us, right? So they're really trying to work with people here. Not that they actually care, right? They don't give a crap if you ruin your credit or you don't have a house to live in. They're protecting their own investments here, right? Banks only care about one thing. It's money, right? And this is why sometimes it gives us a lot of good clues because banks don't have emotions, right? If a bank is doing something, it's not because they're trying to help out. It's not because they're trying to be a nice guy. 
It's because they think that they can make money off of it. And if they're not doing it, it's something that they think is going to cost them money. So a lot of times when I talk about banks and watching what they're doing or watching the smart money on it, we can learn a lot. Hey, you're nervous about that, but Chase is rushing in there and trying to scoop up everything that they have. What do they know that I don't know? Or same flip side. Hey, I think this is really good, but all this big money, all this you know, uh, smart money is leaving this space. They're running as fast as they can. What do they know about that I don't, right? So it's really important to kind of look at this stuff. Now, if we avoid a recession altogether, I think prices in the housing market of early next year could probably still be steady, right? Again, probably goes back to what we're doing with the rates here. You know, no matter what happens, rates will still be high or higher for the first part of next year. So I think that the housing market will probably stay about steady, if not come down a little bit in the first part of next year. Now, I think another reason why the housing market is still doing okay is people are still kind of optimistic here. Hey, you know what? We might be in for higher rates, but second part of you know next year, we could see those rates going back down. And even if the housing prices haven't fallen as much as what they should based on what the rates are, people will probably be still more apt to go and buy knowing that the rates are coming down and there's going to be a refinance on their future. Now, if there is a recession altogether, then that's going to be a massive decrease in the housing prices. Now, the big thing here will be, will this be a cause or an effect? Back in 2008, you could say that maybe it was a little bit of both, but it was a major cause of the recession. The bubble burst, housing market crumbled, everything else kind of went along with it for obvious reasons. But it could also be the effect of it. Hey, we have an overall you know, decrease in other sectors. And again, it's going to kill our housing market. The housing market is such a big driver. It's the biggest investment for the average American on it. So obviously, if your biggest investment is you know, materially impacted, it's going to change your day-to-day lifestyle. It's going to change your day-to-day behavior and going to change your outlook in the future. So last thing on this one is just like I was talking is there's a lot of smart money that is in residential real estate right now. This is not something that we saw back then in the specific you know way that we're seeing now. Um, there's a lot of funds. There's a lot of uh, banks that actually own single family residential real estates. There is whole neighborhoods that are owned by mutual funds or private equity groups um, that they're renting out for an investment. So the good thing on that is, hey, we still see a lot of people in that space, right? Hey, banks think that there is an area to make money there. Could also be a bad thing as well too, right? Bad thing in two different ways. The banks could be in there renting houses to people because they know that people are going to get foreclosed on. People are going to lose their houses. They need somewhere to live and they're they're going to be the savior there. Hey, you lost your house. Don't worry. We're going to rent this house to you. It also could be a bad thing, too, because what if they're affected that way? Hey, we borrowed all this money to be able to have these uh, houses. Now the market turned down. We're now upside down on our houses. These deals no longer cash flow on it. Uh, crap, we got to get out, too. And then not only will we have a housing market crash, we have a stock market crash. And who knows if you know this is the whole chicken or the egg thing. If it goes south, it's probably all going to go south. And maybe it doesn't even matter if it's a cause or effect. If the end product is bad, then we don't really care what caused it. We just need to figure out what to do next. We're getting closer and closer to the stuff that really affects you guys in a day-to-day life and also specifically your business. And we couldn't talk about the automotive repair industry if we don't bring up the used car and new car market. 
This is one that's been really strange because we don't really have any history to kind of compare us to. There is a massive demand on the used car side. Well, I guess a year ago would be a little bit simpler. But used car market going crazy, new car market going crazy as well, really for two big different reasons. You know, a lot of the used car market is obviously dictated by what the new car market was doing. COVID had its own issues. The biggest one is supply chain issues. There was a lot of uh, shortages on the new car side or new truck side, chip shortages, just overall supply chain shortages from the pandemic, not being able to get parts here, not going to be able to get cars here, cars sinking on ships in the middle of the ocean. You name it, we saw it. But all in all, what happened there is supply was very low or in some cases, non-existent. My wife and I were looking to buy a Suburban, actually ended up getting Expedition Max on it but they didn't exist. If you looked at dealer inventory, no one was selling them. And if they were, they were asking $15,000, $20,000 above sticker. But what ends up happening there is if you have an increase in new car, it affects the used car prices as well. And so I did a lot of research on this stuff of this. I obviously just know firsthand because I was in this market. Also, I talked to my clients, right? I always tell you guys, I learn a lot of stuff from my client. So I was going down through making this episode and I decided to call my client up. Uh, she has a really big used car lot around here. I said, why not go to the source and see what they're seeing and see what their industry is saying, what looks like in the future. If you're local, you want to look for a truck, a car, whatever, um, go check them out. They're in Frederick, Kreitz Auto, better people, good prices. Yeah, I can't recommend them enough. And here's kind of what they were saying about what they expect. The biggest thing that I took out and I wrote down my notes here is banks are scared. That's the biggest takeaway that I took out of this. And again, that's very important because if the banks are scared, I should be scared as well too. Now, why are the banks scared or what are the banks doing because they are scared? Interest rates are rising across the board, which is no shock here, right? Previous, all we've been talking about this episode is inflation, interest rates and stuff like that. So Hunt, no duh, of course they're raising interest rates. But the weirder thing is there's no more credit spread, right? Or credit spread is a lot different than what it was in the past. And what is credit spread? So when you're going to buy a house, we do not see credit spread, right? It's usually a yes or no. Yes, you're going to get a mortgage. Here's what rate you're going to pay. No, your credit score is too bad. You're not going to get a mortgage at all. Now, having a 750 versus an 850 credit score really doesn't make that much impact if you have on a mortgage. Hey, if we're going to give you a loan, it's going to be market rate. It's not going to change based on what your worthiness. If it is, it's going to be a very, very small change. However, auto loans are the exact opposite. Some of you might have been aware of that or happened in the past. If you're a 21-year-old kid going to buy your first car, you got no credit or maybe bad credit on this you're getting a pretty high interest rate, right? I've seen 12, 14% notes on car loans for people with bad credit or no credit whatsoever. However, if you have really good credit, you know, a lot of history on it, it was not uncommon to see 0% financing for qualified buyers. So there was this big spread between good credit and bad credit. However, right now, banks don't really have a spread and the rates are getting really high was just talking to my client the other day that went to buy a new car and they tried to give him a 10% loan. Now, obviously he didn't take it. He ended up paying cash for this, but he went and talked to the finance person and said, this is outrageous, right? I got a 780 credit score, always pay my stuff on time. This can't be right. And they pretty much came back and said, yeah, I have no wiggle room, right? I want to get this deal. I want to close it, but there's not even like 0.2% that I can get off of it. 
This is all the bank wants to do. And why? They're nervous. They're scared right now. And so they're saying, hey, we're not going to only hammer the people with bad credit because if these people with bad credit end up just walking away from the deal, then we're making no interest. So we have to make up our interest on everyone, meaning even good credit people are going to be paying higher interest because we're afraid of what's going to happen here and what's going to happen to this overall market. Another thing is, is they're getting rid of longer term deals. Uh, They used to do 84 month financing, sometimes 96 month financing, but I'm glad that that one is gone. But 84 month financing, at this point, there's only a handful of banks doing it, but they're getting away from that as well, too. They don't want this money to be out in the street. The longer term the note, the better chance someone is to be upside down at some point. So if put came to shove and they had to sell that car, they had to repo that car, they'd be underwater. So they're getting rid of that. And overall, they said that the banks are just becoming much, much pickier on deals. You know, they're not jumping up and down. They're not sending all the deals that you want. They've had to kind of shop this stuff around because they're just really, really nervous. Now, why? Obviously, there's a big thing of, hey, overall economy, we're at this big tipping point here. Who knows what's going to go? But specifically for the new car and used car market, this over sticker, this premium that they've been putting on this has a huge ripple effect. And if the sticker or that premium stays there forever, it can be a pretty steady market while inflated. But what we're seeing right now is what happens when that premium goes away. Um, And so one of the examples that they used on this was an Escalade. And so for the longest time over this, you know, kind of pandemic period, the last couple of years, Escalade has been one of the most inflated markets um, when you're comparing what people are selling it for based on what the MSRP is. It was not uncommon to see a new Escalade with a twenty dollars or $30,000 premium added on top of the sticker price. Hey, sticker was $90, dealers are selling it for $120, and a lot of cases selling them faster than they could even bring them in there. It was a really, really hot market. So that was on a new car side. But then what ends up happening is now that inclu- increased the used car value. So yeah, you might have bought your Escalade a year before for $90,000, but if the new ones are selling for $120,000, you'd be crazy to sell it for only $80,000. Maybe you'll now sell your used one for $110,000 or maybe even hundred. Either way, there was a lot of situations where people were selling used cars for more than even paid for it new. So then that what happens when that markup goes away? Hey, when you're trying to sell this used car for $100,000, it looks like a really good deal for a one-year-old car when a new counterpart is 120, right? You have a $20,000 savings by buying used. However, that dealer markup can go away in an instant. Now, what happens if all of a sudden that markup goes away and I can sell that new Escalade for $90,000 or what the MSRP is? Do you think you're going to be able to sell a one-year-old one for $100,000? No way. Why would you buy an older one with more miles for more money? So now that has to come back down to reality. Now, what happens in there is a number of different situations, which is what we're already seeing right now, right? Guys, this one is not, hey, what's going to happen in the future? This is already going on in the used car market. And that was one of the biggest things that I was blown away when I was talking to my client about this is she said, "Hunt, this has been going on for the last six months. It is already here on the used car side, but a lot of people just don't realize it yet. So when that markup goes away, a lot of people are now underwater. Whoa. I now owe $110,000 on this car, and now it's only worth $80,000 because these new ones are selling you know, $30,000 less than what I paid for this. Hey, I'm walking away from this thing. This is very similar to 2008 in a way. Hey, I'm underwater on this Escalade. I'm never going to get above water. 
why am I going to throw any more money at this? I'll just walk away on this. Let the bank come repo this, take it away. I don't care about the credit hit. I was kind of broke anyways. Just take it. And we're already starting to see that repo market come back. Now, what that repo market does is really two things here. So not only is that affecting the used car pricing in the front end, right? Because prices are falling, but then the repossessions are now starting to hit the market. And again, the bank wants to sell those repossessions. So then they're going to be putting more onto the market. And now we actually have some supply here. Prices are coming down. Repossession is coming back into the market. Prices are falling. Now the supply is going up and the prices are falling even more. All in all, what is going on is the used car market has to adjust their prices. Now, for most of COVID times, or let's go before that, right? Pre-COVID, whenever you had a used car, the value of that car was going to fall every single week that you had that car, just naturally. Hey, it's getting older, right? Hey, the farther and farther every day, every week that goes by, that car is not getting newer. It was made in 2020. And so it's getting older and older and older. They're still buying new ones. And so in relative terms and absolute terms is going to get less valuable. Now, during COVID, we saw the exact opposite. Used car prices were actually increasing along the way. Whether it was inflation, whether it was demand, every single week that used car was either maintaining its value or actually getting more and more valuable. A really, really weird thing that was going on. However, on the used car side of this, this is already starting to hit them. And there's already been a couple used car dealerships that have already been put out of business locally because of this, because they did not get ahead of this. They thought the good times would last forever. And over the last six months, on average, the cars have lost about 1% in value per week. That's been going on 26 weeks, right? If you're going to say it's been half a year that's doing this. Every single week, the value of that car has dropped by 1%. Now, what the smart dealerships were doing is the smart dealerships or the high volume dealerships were saying, man, we paid too much. We paid at all prices. These are falling every single week. We need to sell these. We need to cut prices or we need to wholesale these. Just get these off the lot. Stop the bleeding. Hey, we got burned. It is what it is. Now we know that this is coming. We can price these deals accordingly, knowing this. That's okay if you have high volume or if you're smart and you have the future in mind and you can afford to weather the storm and get out from under these these deals. But what happens if you're a smart small dealer with 20 used cars on the lot? Your only business is selling cars, maybe a little bit of money on the back end on financing this. But if you have a small used car dealer, you're banking on the profit of those used cars to pay your bills, to buy inventory of the next one, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe you have 20 cars right now, you're banking in that you're going to be able to make, you know, $2,000 a car. What is that? $40,000 that you plan to make. On average, you turn it every 30 days. That's $40,000 of profit on those vehicles that you're expecting. Now, what happens if all of these have fallen? You bought those at yesterday's prices. You're now selling them at today's. And now you have 20 cars that are already at a loss. Right. If you're stubborn and you keep your prices high and hope that they sell, if they sell, great. If they don't, now you're getting even further away and those prices are falling and falling and falling. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So these dealers are actually just saying, you know what? I'm done. I've went for broke and it burned me. I now have 20 of these hand grenades that I'm sitting on and eventually I have to pull the pin and it's going to take me out one way or another. A lot of people also are floor planning these, right? They are borrowing money from a bank, right? Very similar to a credit line to buy these cars. 
And generally what happens is you buy a car for 15,000, you borrow the money on it, you pay them back 15,500 after the interest, you still sold it for 17,000, they take their cut, everyone moves on with their life. Now, what happens if you paid 15,000, you owe them 15,500 with interest and you sell that car for 12,000? You would actually have to come with money to the table to pay your bank off. So not only do you not have any profit in those cars, you're actually losing even more money and you can't even pay back your floor plan because you don't have enough cash to do so. And that's exactly what we're already seeing. Several of these dealerships, they've told me are already out of business and a couple other ones are up against the ropes because they got short-sighted on this. They didn't start looking at the trends. They thought that you know this was just an aberration and they didn't have to worry about it, but it's already starting to affect them. You know, all in all, I think that the forecast for cars is similar to houses. It could level out, but ultimately it still needs to come down, you know, and supply issues on the new car side maybe are enough to ride it out in a sustainable way, right? You know, the supply side on new cars with the chip shortages and stuff like that is still not something that they're going to fix anytime soon and probably never get back to what we saw in the days of having, you know, lots flooded with cars. But recession, you know, all values are killed and we're in a really rough spot. So no matter which way you slice this one on it, again, we're in a really weird situation. I don't expect it to get much better in the next year. Hopefully it levels out. Hopefully it goes down a little bit. But again, used car, new car, same with the housing on it. Probably not a whole lot of good outlook. If anything, we're just not hoping for a really bad outlook there. All in all, we're at a tipping point in our economy, right? The first and second quarter is when we're going to be able to figure out if the Fed can land this plane or in spite of the best efforts, we come crashing down in a blaze of glory. All these issues really seem to be independent, but really they're all looking very similar. And obviously this is all directly related to your business. Your customer's financial health is obviously affected by inflation as well as the housing market. And your business is strongly tied to the used and new car market. If the car market is high, they're more likely to fix. The car market goes down. There's no reason to fix it. Just go out and buy that car that someone's just trying to get away from, right? Someone's trying to sell it for half price because they need it off their lot. This is why when times are too good, it's not very good for the aftermarket because they're like, why would I pay to fix that? I'll just go buy a new one. If the new one doesn't exist or it's exorbitantly expensive, they're probably going to stay and fix their car. Now, the scariest thing right now is the average American is completely broke. Most Americans do not have any savings, and the majority of the population could not spend $1,000 without going into debt. And those, I have to kind of hammer that home. That is not an opinion. That is strict facts. They look at this stuff. I really wanted to see December figures on this or, or fourth quarter of 2022. All of those figures that I just gave you were actually from early 2022. So if anything, those are going to be worse. And the even crazier thing is a lot of people are like, all right, but my customers don't matter, right? My customers are insulated from this, right? I have a Euro car shop. Most of my people are affluent or, you know, coming from higher earning households. This just is not low income people that are getting affected by this. Inflation is equal opportunity. You know, the inflation of price increase that we're seeing is affecting everyone and sometimes high income households because those are high spending households as well. One of the craziest figures that came out of this is that for people that earn $150,000 to $200,000 a year, over 50% of those households are still living paycheck to paycheck. And this was from July of 2022. So let that sink in, right? This is not people working at McDonald's making $30,000 a year. 
families making $150,000 to $200,000 a year are still living paycheck to paycheck. This is how far-reaching this is. This is how few people have saved any money. This is how inflation has really made everyone go broke. This is how these higher interest rates are killing people. This is something that we need to be aware of, and it's affecting everyone, whether we know it or not. So even if we're going to get through this without a recession, it's still going to be hard. Consumer confidence is getting better, but still not great. People don't have any money because inflation has been such a slow bleed and it's starting to catch up. Interest rates are still at historic levels, not in a good way. And look at what impact this has already had. No one has any money. So where do you think that they're going to get that money, right? We don't live in a society that spends our money or saves our money. We live in a society that we spend other people's money and we borrow that. The average American has over $7,000 in credit card debt. Your average customer is not paying with their own money. They're paying with the bank's money, right? And if the banks stop lending money or lending that money at higher rates, they might love you. They might trust what you do. They just physically don't have the money to spend it. And a couple of you have already started to see that. Hey, I'm not disagreeing with you. I don't care about your prices. I just physically don't have it. I just can't spend it. I want to. I want to fix that. I want the new tires. I want the new shocks, whatever it is. I just don't have it, right? And that's what's really hard. If someone just doesn't have it, I don't care what kind of sales skills you have. I don't care how many pictures you get. I don't care how many videos. It's just a no-go, right? It's just a flat-out, no, I'm not going to do this. So, Hunt, you've got me so excited here, right? What do I do with this information? And here's kind of to wrap this all up of what I'm telling you, what I'm living by. Be cautiously optimistic. I am notoriously a pretty optimistic person, but I don't want to put the blinders on and just say, la, 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 life is good, life is good, I don't need to worry about anything. I'm going to be optimistic, but I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to make sure that I can get through this. So don't get so down that it's going to suck and be prepared for it to suck. But if you don't have any cash, you aren't going to make it through. Banks are getting tougher on lending, and if you do have to borrow, it's going to be very expensive, and it's not going to happen very quick. So in no particular order here, I just kind of a couple bullet points here of, of some quick tips of what I'd be doing for you and your shop. So first and foremost, stay ahead on advertising. Think about this in two ways. First is a lot of people have not really had to do much advertising, specifically the last three years. Hey, why am I going to advertise just to say that I can't take you in for three weeks? Doesn't make much sense. However, advertising has a lead time on it. If you go and do a direct mail campaign or really any sort of advertising campaign, probably not going to see any major results for at least 60 days, maybe even 90 days, right? So there's a lead time on this. If you are slow and you turn on advertising, it's already too late. Now, the hard part is, is you have to kind of be a mind reader on this to make sure you time it correctly. So here's the two different options you have here. If you maintain your advertising and you start it up too early, you might spend a little bit too much money on advertising, but hopefully it has the desired results. On the opposite side of things, maybe you're trying to preserve your money and you don't want to spend any money on advertising until it's too late. Now you have a couple slow months until that advertising ramps back up and fills your capacity again. Both ways, it's going to be costing you money, probably cost you way more in losing work than it does of overspending a little bit on advertising. Another thing is here is watch your numbers, right? How do you know you're slow or how do you know that it's coming if you're not looking at it? And numbers don't lie, but you have to look at trends and averages. This is a very, very volatile industry, the you know service industry. Um, you could have the best week followed by your worst week, the best month followed by your worst month, and there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it. 
But take a look at quotes, right? Hey, are, is our ARO falling because our quotes are falling? No, quotes have maintained the same. Look at your close rates, right? What are people saying yes to? What are people saying no to? Look at your average repair order. You know, look at specifically what people are declining. And this was a cool one that one of my clients said the other day of, hey, you know, all declines or all no's are not created equal. Are they declining work that really is probably, you know, something that maybe isn't essential or are they declining essential work? Because that's going to give you a lot of clear loops. Now, another thing here, if you're looking into numbers on this, I'd probably set up a couple gates that trigger action on this. If we have two months where we're below $80,000 in sales, the alarm bells are going off and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Hey, if I dip below $100,000 in my operating account, I'm going to start doing this. If I dip below $75,000, I'm going to start doing this. If I dip below $50,000, you know, we're smashing the glass case and we're really going all hands on deck, right? Do I need to start cutting people? Do I need to start cutting pay? What do I need to do? Again, This is not to freak you out. This is not to put you in a bad mood. All we're trying to do here is get through this. Worst case scenario, if you go down through and you say, oh man, we got by. Maybe I didn't need to be that nervous, but I survived. That's still a win in my book. If you're nervous already, then start getting tight now. If you need it, get it. If not, put the card away, right? Put a freeze on stuff. You can always buy it later. You can't generally return it if it's what you paid for. Now, but be mindful of this, right? Don't go out canceling stuff that gives you value, right? Don't go out and, you know, cut your advertising trying to save money. It's going to shoot you in the foot down the road. Don't go out and cancel all your coaching subscriptions. Hey, if you say, well, I'm paying these people a lot of money to give me good advice. Now you get rid of that monthly fee, but you're also getting rid of that advice. It's costing you money as well. You know, this is the frivolous stuff. Hey, you know what? Maybe I'll cut back on how much I'm spending on my office supplies and stuff like that. Or maybe I'll cut back on my personal spending, right? Something that's not affecting my business whatsoever. You can always buy it later. You can't return that jet ski that you just drove for three months and then realize, oh, I'm broke. I got to sell this for 20 cents on a dollar. Now, there could be some good in all this too. And I've already started to see this on my clients looking to buy other businesses. Um, looking to go multi-location, looking to go into ad locations. Now, again, you got to be careful, right? You can make three times as much money if you have three locations. You can also burn through cash three times as fast. So if you're multi-location, the stakes are even higher for you. But there's a lot of more realistic deals that I've been starting to see. Over the last you know, three years during COVID, I've seen some outrageous prices on what people feel like their business is worth for a number of reasons. But all in all, people were making a lot of money. And so they were weighting their current figures much more than they had their historic figures on it. But businesses are starting to feel it. There's been these people that have wanted a million dollars from my client last year that called them up and said, you know what? You offered me 300,000. I'm willing to talk. Government money's running out. Businesses are starting to kind of slow down a little bit. And people that aren't getting ahead of this stuff are starting to suffer. So there could be some good buying opportunities out there. You know, there could be some shop shutting down, which could free up some technicians on this. So there's always going to be some positives out of this, but it's probably positives from other people's misfortune that didn't prepare as well. So just like a lot of things in our recent life, there's going to be opportunities to make money. I'm sure of it. But if you have to make sure that you can make it to the other side, this is about surviving. And those that survive will have money to show for it. But if you get too aggressive and you burn through your cash, you'll have nothing. So be smart. Read the news uh, within reason, right? Read the numbers. Read the facts on this, if you can even tell what a fact is nowadays. And make your own plan. 
So I hope this was helpful for you. I hope this kind of gave you some clues or at least gave you a little bit of backstory on, hey, all in all, Hunt, you said you think it's going to be a flat year, but why? Draw your own conclusions from this. It's going to be different depending on what you do, how much money you have, what you're trying to do, where you are in life. So many things. If you can get one thing out of this, it should be that you need to create your own plan. Don't go off of my plan. You could use some of my advice. You could use some of my strategies here, but you need to make something that makes sense for you. Not only from a financial side, but a mental side as well. If you have a plan, if you have safeguards in place, not only will I hope that that'll be a better you know, avenue for success, but also hopefully make you uh, not go crazy in the meantime as well. Hopefully this was helpful. Please share this with friends, shop owners, fellow small business owners. You know, this is advice out there for really anyone. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a future episode, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. Just want to say thanks again for listening off on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listing app. So thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.